teaching for this evening is based on the scripture reading from Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16. And this is God's word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. So early this fall, we're taking uh, several weeks, four weeks actually, to uh, renew our vision as a church. And we're doing that by looking at uh, four words that the, the elders here at Red Mountain Church have um, come to identify as key themes, key ideas that uh, we deeply care about as a church of Jesus Christ. And those words are worship, grace, community, and place. And two weeks ago, we began our series looking at uh, renewing our vision and, and our values by looking at Psalm 95 to see what it had to teach us about worship, and in particularly how we saw the rhythm of worship and how Worship is intended to orient us to God and to his word. And then last week, we looked at the idea of grace from Second Kings chapter 5 and the story of Naaman, the Syrian, who was also a leper, and how grace comes to us through the costly love and forgiveness of Jesus. And this week, we're looking at the idea of community. And we're going to look at Ephesians 4 to see what it has to teach us about community, what it means to be what the Bible calls a body of believers in Jesus. And what we're going to see in this chapter, or in these verses in chapter 4, is how Jesus takes his grace and works it into our lives so that we might grow up into a mature community, which essentially means a community that loves as he loves. And I want us to see three things. We're going to see the means of growth. We're going to see the goal of this growth, of growing up. 
And also then, lastly, the pursuit of it. How do we as a body of, of followers of Jesus pursue this growth? So we have the means of it, the goal of it, and then the pursuit of it. So first, let's look here at the means of growth. Uh, I'm going to focus tonight uh, a pretty, um, pretty much fully on verses 11 through 16. But I wanted us to read beforehand all of, all of the verses from 1 through 16 to give you uh, an introduction into this part of Paul's letter. And the reason is that chapter 4, verse 1 begins a whole new section. A whole new section. The first three chapters, Paul has been expounding what we might call the gospel. The free grace of God. And it would be easy for you to, to just run right past this and perhaps not see it without it being pointed out to you. But in the first three chapters, there are a total of 56 verses. 56 verses. And there is one command. Only one time in those first three chapters does Paul tell us to do something. However, with chapter 4, verse 1, now through the end of chapter 6... Almost every verse you will find, or every couple verses, you will find some command, some instruction. Now, what does that tell you? Well, look what Paul says. He says in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What does he mean by a, a manner worthy of the calling that, with which you've been called? What he essentially means here, and the way I just was describing how this book works, is that grace, the gospel, creates new life. It creates new life in you. If you accept this free offer, it also creates a whole new life in a community of his followers. So what I want you to see at the very beginning, the way that this passage begins and introduces to us the means of growth, how we grow up in the faith, it begins on on the basis of all that Jesus has done in the first three chapters. It's not as though Paul is saying to us, okay, I told you all about who this Jesus is and what he has done. Now, you need to actually show that you're worthy of it. That is not what he's saying. To live in a manner worthy of the calling of the gospel is what we might say a lifestyle that's fitting, that fits with that good news and what Jesus has done, that's appropriate to it. Or to borrow from what Paul says elsewhere in Galatians chapter 2, a lifestyle or a, to say to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is to keep in step with it. To keep in step with the truth of the gospel. However, look here in verse 2 and 3 before we move on to the latter part of this passage. Even as Paul calls us, he appeals to us to live in light of this grace, in light of this good news he's been telling us. Just look in verse 2 and 3, a very quick glance. Here's how we're supposed to do that with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
Now, perhaps we just read right past that uh, a few moments ago. But let that sink in. This is pretty much impossible. You are to live towards one another with all humility, with perfect gentleness, with perfect patience, bearing with one another, eager to enjoy peace and unity that the gospel brings. That's what you're called to here. And therefore, this is by no means easy. It is demanding. It's difficult. And so Paul teaches us what we need in order to keep this gospel front and center, as Paul has been doing for the previous three chapters. And this is the means of our growth. Notice what he says here in verse 11. He says that it says he, meaning Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints. You see, Jesus here is described as not only the Savior, but the head of the church, the one who gives gifts of grace to his people in order that they might grow up in him. And what does he have in mind here? The means of growth that you and I need is what we might call the ministry of the word, the scriptures. Look in verse 7 here for a moment. Paul tells us that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, Paul is saying that Jesus gives a diversity of gifts. He gives all of his people gifts in order that they might use those gifts to glorify him and serve one another. And then, notice though, in verse 11, Paul focuses what he's talking about on the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. What do all of those gifts have in common? What they all have in common is what we might call their word gifts. That these are gifts that Jesus has given to the church to teach and preach the message of the gospel. So for example, I'm not going to spend much time on differentiating between these, but just to give you an idea here, the apostles and the prophets, Paul mentioned earlier in chapter 2, that the apostles and the prophets, the apostles were those that Jesus appointed to bear witness on his behalf. They functioned like a power of attorney. Whatever they said and taught and preached for Jesus was as if he was there. And Paul always joins the prophets up with the apostles, that these were, along with the evangelists in the New Testament. We don't see a whole lot about the evangelists in the New Testament. There's actually only one person who is referred to as an evangelist, mentioned one time. And then Paul exhorts his understudy, Timothy, to carry out the ministry of an evangelist. It's rather different than what we might refer to or think of when you think of a, like a tele-evangelist today. These apostles and prophets and evangelists are what, these guys were the ones who were at the very early stages of the Christian church, helping to establish churches, proclaiming and teaching who Jesus was, what he came to do, what God had promised from the earliest parts of the scriptures until Jesus had come, what all that means. 
But then he also mentions the pastors and teachers. Now, the pastors and teachers throughout the New Testament are always described as those who help to oversee churches. And again and again, we see in the New Testament, these are the elders, these are the shepherds. And from the earliest days of the church, elders, shepherds, have been the leaders of the church tasked with this responsibility to minister the word of God to his people. Now, what is the main task that makes this such a means of growth? Well, look in verse 12. Paul says that the main task here is to equip the saints. What does that mean? Well, this this word, this verb to equip was actually used in the medical world. In, in the time of, of the, the first century. And it was a word that was used to describe restoring broken bones, broken limbs. And here, Paul picks up on that metaphor, that use, and applies it to the church, that the, the, the ministry of the word, the preaching and teaching of the scriptures, our reading of it, our discussing of it, our wrestling with it together, is a means by which... Broken lives, hard hearts, broken relationships are restored. That the ministry of the word is how sin gets dealt with. The ministry of the word is how you put off sin and put on righteousness. Here is one writer, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on, on this very passage says that a church in which the word of God is explained and applied, it becomes a hospital for the sick and a gymnasium to build up spiritual strength and stamina. Here the word of God does its own healing, cleansing, transforming work on our sinful and broken lives. And let me show you There are two passages that particularly illustrate what it means to say that the scriptures, the ministry of the word, preaching, teaching, studying the scriptures, is the means by which God has ordained that we would grow, both in depth and then in in breadth. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, how it describes the word of God. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. The scriptures, God has given the scriptures, and those who teach it to you, day in and day out, in order that he might do surgery on your heart, that he might be able to divide between all of those nooks and crannies, those dark corners, those areas in your life that perhaps you're terrified of, you don't want anyone else to know about, you're ashamed of, you're guilty of, the scriptures are there to do surgery on your heart. But not only that, they're there to equip you. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The simplest way I know to say, how do the scripture, what do the scriptures do as a means of growth? According to that passage from 2 Timothy, the scriptures are how God works in your life to make you truly human. Think about that. What happened in the garden, in the beginning of the story of the Bible? Adam and Eve turned away from God. They turned away from the one who loves them, who made promises to them, who is in perfect communion and fellowship with them, and instead they decided to go their own way, to rebel against him, which is another way of saying to become less human. The scriptures are how God works in your life to teach you, to correct you, to train you, to even rebuke you in order that you might become what he intended you to become. Now, that's the means of our growth. It's the ministry of the word. It's the scriptures at work in our common life together. And the ministry of the word, therefore, it must... It never merely pass along information. It always must seek to transform our whole lives. What we love, what we long for, how we talk to one another, how we relate to our neighbors, everything. And if the ministry of the word of God is is the means of this change, then what might that look like? What does the change look like? So let's look at the goal of growth. If we've... Looked at the means of it, let's look at the goal of it. Let's look in verse 13 to 14 together. Here, after Paul has talked about the the ministry of the word, the gifts that Jesus has given for our equipping, for our uh, growth as followers of him, that we might actually enter into ministry and be built up. And then he says in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's a mouthful. In fact, I would, forgot to tell you earlier, verses 11 through 16, actually 7 through 16, is one long sentence. It was a run-on, so it's all kind of jumbled in there. So you get mouthfuls like this in verses 13 to 14. But what are these marks? What does it look like? What's the goal of this growth? First, look at the beginning of verse 13. The first goal is that we would experience Deep unity in the faith with Jesus at the center. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. I want you to think about this for a moment. There are lots of, um, just think about the associations that you have in your daily life that unify you or gather you with certain kinds of people. Maybe it's where you work. Maybe it's um, uh, um, a group that you're involved with as an extracurricular type activity, or maybe it's where your children go to school. What I want you to see from what Paul is saying here, that unity in the church, it cannot originate with us. The moment unity in the church, originates with us, it will cease to exist. Now, why do I say that? Because left to ourselves, we will always draw lines of exclusion that the scriptures do not. 
we will always opt to build unity along lines of preference or affinity that the scriptures do not allow us to do. Unity cannot originate with us. It must come from outside of us. It must come from the gospel. Paul has been talking about this earlier in chapter 2 when he talked about how the gospel tore down the dividing wall of hostility between, in the first century, Jews and Gentiles. People who had nothing in common, no shared preferences, no affinities at all. That the gospel is what must create unity among God's people and the gospel alone. And I, I don't have time to go into this, but in our city where we are still ripped apart along, along racial lines, this is the answer to that. How do we know if we are beginning to see this kind of unity, this kind of knowledge of the gospel, absorption of it, relationship with Jesus, take root in our life will be that we will begin to see people increasingly who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who perhaps don't have the same kinds of education as we do, who are different than us in many, many, many ways, yet love Jesus have come to know him, have come to experience his grace. If we are truly to be a church of Jesus, a community characterized by the gospel, that's what we must long for. That's what we must pray for. That's one of the goals of Christian community is a unity that begins outside of us in the gospel that transforms everything about our life together. But the second goal, look in verse 13 again, that we would attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Second, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does that mean? It's very, actually very, very simple. The second goal in view here is that you and I would become more like Jesus. That's what Paul's talking about. Becoming more like Jesus. Let me put it differently. What does it mean for you to grow in personal holiness? It means to become more like Jesus. Holiness is not a popular word even in the church these days. But all the scriptures mean by holiness is becoming like Jesus. And growth in maturity according to the Bible it is always oriented at becoming conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what it means to grow. That's what it looks like for you to grow. Now, you have these two goals. Unity in the faith with Jesus at the center of it. And then you have growth in your own life becoming more like him. Now, Perhaps those may, may seem like, why those goals? They, they, maybe they're rather uh, impractical. But notice for a moment, Paul doesn't think these are impractical at all. In fact, verse 14 shows us that for Paul, when the ministry of the word is at work, 
And we begin to see these goals, how, the however small and slow, begin to materialize in our community. They are very, very practical. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What's Paul talking about here? This is why we need the ministry of the word. This is why you need the scriptures in your life, in the context of a community like this. Notice the imagery here. You've got a child, and it's implied that, there's, that the child is in a boat, being tossed around in waves, in a storm, out in open water, left to drift wherever the winds and the storm Take this child. This is a picture of someone who is utterly helpless, has absolutely no stability. And Paul uses that imagery to help us to see something about ourselves that perhaps is not easy to see. Look what he says. So that we may no longer be children. Well, if we press that a little bit, the assumption is that you kind of are a child. That I am a child, that we are immature, that we are unstable, and that we need the ministry of the word to make us stable and mature. The idea here is that uh, when, when Paul lists all of these, that every wind of doctrine, the human cunning, craftiness and deceitful schemes, all he's really talking about here is false teaching. Or perhaps... He's, he's, he's talking about other gospels, other beliefs, ways of living, perspectives or values that hold out to you something that only God can give you. That left to ourselves, we will never be able to discern that for what it really is. And we will continually find ourselves going from one thing to the other and never growing up. I couldn't help but think of the this, the, the, the number of articles in recent years um, talking about men, particularly, in their mid to late 30s, or mid to late 20s, early 30s, who still live at home on their parents' dime. Delayed adolescence by 15 years. That's kind of what's in view. A person who is tossed to and fro never grows, never gains maturity or stability. Paul is saying it's the scriptures that work in your life that can make you stable and mature in the midst of storm, in the midst of trial, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of difficulty. So having looked at both the means of, of growth and as well as these goals of growth, I want us to look lastly at how do we pursue it. How can we, as a community, pursue this growth? And the answer is very straightforward. Look in verse 15 and verse 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Jesus. And then look in verse 16. Here, love appears again, building itself up in love. Now, if we were to flip back to verse 2, Paul calls us to bear with one another in love. 
How do you pursue growth in communion with one another? It can be summed up in the one word, to love. Bearing with one another in love, speaking the truth of the gospel in love, building one another up in love. Now, with those ideas in mind, it's clear that Paul understands that love is absolutely central to our identity as a community. So much so that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, listen to how important and central it is that love be the animating, motivating drive of our relationships and our common life together. He says, if, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Listen to this. If I give, give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, what Paul is saying, the entire Christian life is summed up in that one word, love. And the love that Paul has in view here is exclusively revealed through Jesus, who is the head. Look in verse 15. He is the head of the body. He says here that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. What, what does this idea of the metaphor of Jesus as the head of the body mean? Well, Paul uses this metaphor in other places, but essentially it means this. Jesus is the source of all that we need. That he is the one who supplies whatever we need for our ongoing growth and development. Now that means you need to be connected to him. But what I want you to understand here is it's not just that Jesus is the head of the body who gives what we need. Paul, in just another chapter, he tells us that he's also a husband who loves his bride and gave himself up for her to make her beautiful. You see, the reason that you need to be connected to this Jesus isn't just because he has the goods, though he does. The reason you need to be connected to Jesus if we are to love one another is because we need first to be known, we first need to know ourselves loved by him. You need to have an experience of grace that goes beyond just information to the heart where you can say, I know myself loved by this Jesus who did not even spare his own life, who gave all that he had, even being rejected and forsaken by his father on the cross so that I never would be. You see, if if that grace and that love begins to take root in your life, you will know how to begin to speak the truth in love towards one another. You will know how to bear with one another in love. You will know how to build each other up in love. And as we draw to a close tonight, um, I think one of the great ironies of this passage is how it talks so much about growing up, about maturity, 
And yet, we usually tend to think of maturity as independence and competence. But notice, there's nothing in this passage that draws on that. It assumes and actually requires that we admit we don't have the competence we need. That to be independent actually ruins community. To grow up and be mature means that you realize you do not have what you need to thrive with one another apart from Jesus. And I I want you to, um, over the next several weeks, I want you to sit with this passage for a bit. And one of the ways I want to help you do that, especially if if you're involved in one of our community groups, is I've written up a few uh, Bible discussions from this passage, as well as a few others, to help you reflect on this. And in the next week or so, I'm going to send out those discussions and to, to all the different community groups and ask you to actually take time, make, take you a month, to talk through this passage along with a few others and to begin to work into your conversations and your common life together. What does it look like for us to be a, a, a community that's growing in the gospel together? Because you cannot grow on your own. You cannot grow independently from one another. And you cannot grow independently from the scriptures, from the preaching and the teaching and the reading and the discussing of this word that holds out to you, this Jesus, who spared nothing so that you would have everything through faith in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for passages like this that Help us to see what your vision is for your people and how you're going to accomplish that. However slowly, however um, much time it takes, that you are not finished with us. But that your gospel and your salvation in Jesus um, ignites and begins a whole new life that not only takes root in our hearts, but in our relationships as a community of your people. And Father, we ask that you would, by your grace, help us to grow up into Jesus by speaking the truth in love to one another, by bearing with one another in love, by building one another up in love such that others begin to see that and experience it and discover this Jesus and the costly love and forgiveness that he freely gives to all who would come to him. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.